It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Now here's the answer to all our problems. Why didn't I think of this? All this division between the red and blue states, the red states should simply secede. They should form their own country. Now, who is floating this idea? Marjorie Taylor Greene, on President's Day yesterday, said, we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this. She must talk to a wide variety of people. Uh, From the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. So, a kind of a civil war without the shots being fired. And then she also went on to say that Americans hate Joe Biden. She criticized his visit to Ukraine, which I'll get to in moments. I cannot express how much everyone hates Joe Biden. Remember that the Georgia congresswoman, you know, filed a motion to impeach President Biden the day he took office. And, you know, I've interviewed Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think she sometimes has good political instincts. Uh, I think she's walked away from, in her alliance with Kevin McCarthy, some of the crazy QAnon stuff she used to believe. She says that. I have no reason to doubt it. But something like this, I mean, just think about it. Often there's a debate about one state. Okay, so first of all, who gets to decide who's a red state and who's a blue state? Let's say it's uh, Wisconsin. Let's say it's Ohio. Let's say it's Michigan. In other words, states that are known for sort of being purple. But even put that aside. Let's say you had a, everyone agreed on the list. And of course, they wouldn't be contiguous. You'd have the two coasts uh, in blue and a lot of red in the middle of the map with a few exceptions in the Midwest, etc. So who gets control of the nuclear arsenal? Uh, if there's a war, who has the power to call up troops? Does each state just simply, I mean, we're we talking here about forming a alternate country among the red states, or is it going to be state by state? How about the dams and the bridges that uh, federal taxpayers and the highways and mass transit systems, the federal taxpayers helped construct with their tax dollars? So I don't know, maybe she's just trolling. It's not being meant to take seriously. She's like, I'm just so fed up. I don't want to ever step foot in a blue state. I don't know, but it caught my eye. CNN and Don Lemon, this has gotten so much attention and maybe you wait for the weekend or something, but you know, Don Lemon did something monumentally dumb would be putting it politely. He's on the morning show with Caitlin Collins and Poppy Harlow. And remember, he was supposed to give up the um, super controversial, ultra liberal, hates Trump and Republicans persona that he had in prime time to be the perky morning show guy. And yet, when Nikki Haley's presidential candidacy came up, Lemon said, well, you know, because there was this question about age where she was saying, you know, any politician over 75 must take a competency test. Um, And he said, you know, Nikki Haley, who's 51, uh, is not in her prime. I mean, for a woman, you could say 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. And his co-hosts were suitably shocked. I think there was some biting of the tongues. He did not come to work at CNN this morning on Friday or yesterday or today. 
But CNN chairman uh, Chris Licht has sent out a memo to employees, which, of course, leaked or was leaked uh, very quickly. I sat down with Don and I had a frank and meaningful conversation. He agreed to participate in formal training as well as continuing to listen and learn. We take this situation very seriously. It's important to me that CNN balances accountability with fostering a culture in which people can own, learn, and grow from their mistakes. To that end, Don will return to CNN this morning on Wednesday. Well, I was never one saying, oh, this is so outrageous, he had to be fired. It was it's dumb, it was stupid, it was insensitive, it was sexist. Um, on the other hand, this idea that a guy who has been in broadcasting for decades who is one of the biggest stars at CNN, who's paid millions of dollars, needs to have formal training uh, about what to say and what not to say, well, you know, it's a kind of a fig leaf in the sense that Licht wants to show that he's taking this seriously. So he's saying, you know, you need counseling for saying these things. Uh, And it shows him taking a step by itself. Does it do anything? Probably not. Uh, All the bad publicity will probably cause Lemon to curb his tongue for a while. But of course... You know, he's a guy who kind of sells his personality on TV, and when he muzzles himself too much, then he's just dull. And, you know, the morning show is really struggling. I think he was trying to light some fires, not just with this, but with other comments. Anyway, he'll be back at work. That would be tomorrow. Um, You know, this is the kind of thing where when outrageous comments are made on the right, everybody goes crazy, and that's fine. When outrageous comments are made on the left, uh, not so much. Nikki Haley was accused by a Daily Beast contributor, Wajahat Ali, on MSNBC. I see her and I feel sad because she uses her brown skin as a weapon against poor black folks and poor brown black folks. She uses her brown skin to launder white supremacist talking points. What? For white supremacists and racists, she's the perfect Manchurian candidate. Now, I don't think even most media liberals agree with this. It's racist. It's disgusting. And Nikki Haley is a woman of color who, as South Carolina governor, took lots of political heat for taking down the Confederate flag on the statehouse grounds. So how is she in any way connected to white supremacist talking points. But look at the difference. I mean, I think this is about 10 times worse than what Don Lemon said. And look, Don Lemon is obviously a lot more famous than this contributor, but where's the drumbeat of stories? MSNBC, uh, does this meet your standards? You could allow this. Obviously, the network didn't know what he was going to say, but, you know, will he be booked again to spew this nonsense? Um... Nikki, they'll never love you. It ain't worth it. It just goes on and on. I should just stop. I've given it enough. Story number one. President Biden is in Poland today. That was the original destination of his trip, except none of us knew, and this had been planned in secrecy for months, that he was going to go to Kiev yesterday and walk the streets with Vladimir Zelensky. And I have to say, they the way they pulled that off was just brilliant. And... Biden is getting a rare dose of bipartisan praise, which I'll come back to. And it just, you know, there's no substitute for being there, the two presidents, walking down the street in this war-torn country where air raid sirens were going off, 
our president having taken a 10-hour train trip um, because it's the only safe way to get into the country, and even that was fraught with danger. And watching the pictures today of Joe Biden with President Duda, and they, you know, they had their color guard out and red carpet treatment in front of the royal palace there, if that's the right name. Um, I felt, you know, they played the Star Spangled Banner, and I felt like, you know, Joe Biden does a very able job of representing the United States of America. You can completely and totally disagree with his foreign policy. You can completely and totally disagree with how much money we're spending on Ukraine. But, you know, he he's known uh, many of these world leaders. He carries himself with dignity. He doesn't um, create diplomatic embarrassments. I'm sure he's created a couple that I'm not thinking of. But um, I think this is a good few days for him. I mean, this has become his cause. Who knew when he ran for president? Um, just as who knew when George W. Bush ran for president that uh, in about eight and a half months later we'd be facing 9-11. That's why we elect presidents whose judgment we have confidence in because we don't know what kind of challenges that person will be facing. So Putin's getting a lot of uh, attention uh, because he announced in his equivalent of the State of the Union that Moscow is suspending its participation in the New START Nuclear Nonproliferation Agreement. It's the last arms control agreement that still exists between the U.S. and Russia. Um, And it's not anywhere near as dramatic as it sounds. Because, see, Putin isn't withdrawing from the treaty. He is just suspending it. And this is a treaty that puts the phrases, quote, verifiable limits on the number of ICBMs, missiles and nuclear warheads, deployed by each country. Putin says uh, relations have degraded, and that's completely and utterly the U.S.'s fault. So he's playing, obviously, to his domestic audience. Now, the thing is, what's missing now is that if Russia decides to build a bunch of new warheads or a bunch of new uh, intercontinental missiles, or the U.S. does, neither side can go and inspect. It was in a treaty that allowed, you know, it's the old Reagan phrase, trust but verify. Now we don't have that. But it only applies to nuclear weapons that would be made in the future, that's why it has the word nonproliferation. Um, and I don't think that Russia's economy and fighting this war in Ukraine is in any shape to you know, start a new arms race. You know, each country has enough nuclear capacity to destroy the world several times over. So it's a, it's a move because, you know, what, what, what Putin is trying to do is to say, I've got nuclear weapons. Don't screw with me. He's doing this the day after Joe Biden is in Ukraine. And, you know, after the most recent uh, pledges of heavier, uh, faster, and longer-range weapons from the U.S. and some of these other countries as well. Um, On his speech today, uh, White House officials saying that Biden is going to make an appeal to the world's democracies to continue to stand against Russian aggression, but it's not a sort of a tit-for-tat response uh, to Russia was never designed that way. And here's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan dismissing Vladimir Putin's claims. If Russia stops fighting the war and Ukraine and goes home, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting and the United States and the coalition stops helping them fight, Ukraine disappears from the map. And I think that's very aptly put. Uh, because, you know, Putin has this fantasy that he spins to his audience, which maybe has trouble getting any independent information, 
that, you know, Russia is the victim here and Russia is just doing this in defense. And, you know, there, there was no threat to Russia. There was no overt threat to Russia. Putin has territorial ambitions that go well beyond Ukraine. He wants to reconstitute some of the old Soviet empire. I think that is pretty clear. Now, there's an interesting piece in The Atlantic by Elliot Cohn, who says, look, the long-range missiles matter, so do the super-accurate artillery shows, uh, shells, the surface-to-air missiles, the winter weather gear, you know, all this stuff, military gear and stuff and weapons that uh, Kiev is getting. President Joe Biden's visit to Kiev matters just as much of, as any of these. Other heads of government preceded him, earning deserved credit. But it's an altogether different thing for the President of the United States, who is, after all, the leader of the free world, when he shows up. He pledged our unwavering and unflagging commitment to Ukraine's democracy, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. More important, he said the U.S. will stand with Ukraine as long as it takes. And some Republicans and other skeptics you know, would seize on that and say, well, how long will it take? And, you know, we don't have a bottomless treasury and so forth. Uh, he goes on to say in this Atlantic piece, symbols matter. A Kennedy or a Reagan at the Berlin Wall, a Churchill with a cigar and a bowler, uh, or the green-clad Zelensky growling, I need ammunition, not a ride. Simply by taking the hazardous trip to Kiev, Biden made a strategic move of cardinal importance. Um, Cohen goes on to say that Russia has cycled through a series of theories of victory in Ukraine, that Kiev's leaders would flee, that the, Rus- the Ukraine population would not fight, that the army would be crumpled up by a sum- sudden blitz or by grinding assaults. It's been reduced to one last hope that Vladimir Putin's will is stronger than Joe Biden's. And Biden just said, by word as well as by deed, oh, no, it's not. It's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, Finally, Cohn says in his piece, the visual contrast between an American president with his signature aviator glasses, sunglasses walking in sunny downtown Kiev with the pugnacious and eloquent president of Ukraine and a Russian president who's yet to visit the war zone is also striking. Uh, And, you know, Putin also keeps everyone at a distance when they visit. Uh, Interestingly, on Fox Business, Stuart Varney, a very outspoken conservative host and business whiz, uh, said Biden's trip is unprecedented in modern history. The timing here is crucial for an American president to travel to an active war zone without a large U.S. military presence. The president suddenly pops up uh, in a foreign capital that is under attack. He is sticking it to Putin one year after Russia invaded. The Russians are preparing a big push. Um... Russia had started its invasion and was expected to take Kiev within a week. Remember that? Zelensky said, no, I'm staying. Just give me the bullets. He's still there. My opinion, says Varney, give him what he wants. Let Ukraine win. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, number two is the Alec Baldwin case, the tragic and fatal shooting on the set of that movie, Rust. So looking here at the New York Post piece on it, um, Baldwin has won at least a partial legal battle. And it is my opinion, and I've said this, you can agree, you can disagree, and I don't say Alec Baldwin is blameless, and he was also a producer 
of the movie. And, uh, you know, he's had lawsuits to contend with. And I'm not saying, well, they did nothing wrong. But I think it's pretty clear that the local prosecutors overcharged him because uh, they could, because they had a very famous defendant, which would make them, which would put them in the news. And I don't think a whole lot of legal experts were expecting uh, criminal charges. So now the Santa Fe County District Attorney's Office says it has dropped one of the two involuntary manslaughter charges. Uh, And now, if Baldwin were to be convicted, if there's a trial, whatever, uh, he would face a maximum of 18 months in prison, down from five years. Lawyers for Baldwin said that the other charge that was just withdrawn was unconstitutional. This is pretty blatant. Listen to this. Because it was based on a New Mexico law passed after the deadly shooting on the set of Rust in October 2021. So you can't do that in the law. You you know, if I go and do something and six months later you go and pass a law and you say this thing that I did was illegal, you know, my lawyers will say it wasn't illegal at the time that he did it. It just shows you how overzealous these prosecutors are. Uh, they say in order to avert further litigious distractions by Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys, the DA and special prosecutor removed the firearm enhancement charge. Uh, I just think this is very telling. The reduced charge also applies to the armorer, who was actually the person responsible for the safety of any guns used on that set. Her name is Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Um, and, um, you know, it doesn't make the situation any better. Baldwin still says he's going to do this movie and I think wants to give a lot of the proceeds or has agreed uh, in litigation to give a lot of the proceeds or all the proceeds to the family of Helena Hutchins, who was the cinematographer who was killed by the bullets, the live ammunition that Baldwin didn't know was in the gun. I, I mean, obviously he didn't know because no famous rich actor or even a penniless unknown actor would fire a loaded gun somebody on a movie set. So it's involuntary manslaughter, but you get into questions of recklessness and negligence and all of that. All right, number three, this is a pretty big deal. I previewed this uh, a couple of weeks ago when the first installment happened. James O'Keefe, he is the founder of Project Veritas. He became a very well-known public figure by secretly taping and having his staffers secretly record conversations, often with journalists, that often would be extremely embarrassing to the journalists, as they would talk about Trump or their liberal views. Uh, I've Sometimes the work that he has done has exposed and has led to resignations of, you know, really unprofessional things that journalists were dumb enough to say to somebody with... A hidden camera. Anyway, he has resigned. He is leaving Project Veritas. Now, sometimes O'Keefe has had a huge impact, particularly with uh, his undercover work on NPR. It has led kind of worked at least to resignations as journalists, you know, are share their liberal views in ways that are embarrassing and sometimes become untenable. In other instances, he's faced legal problems. And I just am uncomfortable, I know this was done decades ago, but, you know, with the idea of impersonating somebody, so you're already lying, you're not using your real name. And then secondly, 
you, do, you have the hidden cameras, you're surreptitiously taping someone. And maybe you could argue it's one thing if you, it involves like nuclear secrets, but if it's just a question to, to own the libs, to embarrass the left. In any event, why is he leaving? He put up a video saying he's leaving. Um, he's leaving after a lengthy memo from unhappy employees, and apparently there were a lot of them, uh, which complained about his, quote, outright cruel conduct. Uh, in his own video, O'Keefe, O'Keefe, appearing kind of emotional, this is a Daily Beast piece, uh, claimed him he'd been pushed out by the board after telling his members to either quit themselves or face his resignation. So it was a situation where he said, it's you or me. You know, either you resign and I stay, and if you want to stay in these jobs, I'm out. O'Keefe got choked up. He quoted Ayn Rand, the fountainhead, appeared to wipe away tears as he announced plans for a new group. Quoted Shakespeare. Um, He posted screenshots of what he claimed were the minutes of the board meeting where he was put on, this happened, you know, maybe 10 days ago. He was put on uh, unpaid leave and offered mental wellness care. Hmm. And then there's this question of about a financial audit um, where there were released allegations that uh, there was a $12,000 expense at a wedding hall that O'Keefe said was used for the holiday party, frequent private car trips, and on and on. So, I mean, as I said when this first came up, James O'Keefe is Project Veritas. I don't really think it exists without him. The idea that he leaves and this group will just regather under somebody else uh, I think that's wishful thinking. On the other hand, since O'Keefe is so controversial and has lately had a rough time of it, and, you know, here you have, I mean, it's a bit of a mutiny, right? Like a pirate ship. Uh, you have somebody, uh, you have this whole group of people, which was said to be about a third of the staff, um, just being so pissed off that they write this memo saying this guy's impossible to work for. I gave you some of the examples. Um I don't know that O'Keefe can just go and found a new group and hire a few people and be as effective. So O'Keefe's announcement, or his resignation, I guess you would say, uh, first announced on Twitter by Neil McCabe, a reporter for One American News. Uh, McCabe telling the Delhi Beast that O'Keefe resigned without striking a severance deal with the board. Quote, he just resigns and walks out the door to start a new life. Now we'll see how, now we'll see. Does the organization he created deserve credit? You know, one last thought on this, and I'm just using O'Keefe as a jumping-off point. For many successful leaders, they have to have this quality of not just ambition, but hard-driving, aggressive never say no, never give up, um, just almost like guerrilla fighters to get anything done. Because in any organization, it's hard to get things done because you have bureaucracies and you have someone saying, we can't do that, it's never been done before, and there are all these rules and regulations. And, you know, the great leaders who rise to the top are able to overcome those obstacles and also win people over and rally them to, as John McCain used to say, a cause greater than ourselves. But the same qualities that make them aggressive and ambitious 
and successful can also make them really difficult to work for. And it's, there's that sort of dichotomy there. I mean, you, if you believe in the person, you want to work for them, but he or she treats everybody like ass. And then, you know, whatever happens is when the television show is in trouble, I'm thinking of Ellen, when a campaign is in trouble, suddenly these leak stories start to appear about, you know, the temper tantrums this person had. And uh, you remember the story about Amy Klobuchar and she needed a fork for her salad and all of that. And, you know, in the end, how do you judge them? I mean, we're all flawed human beings. So I, I'm not so much applying this to O'Keefe because I think his record was very mixed, but it is interesting that a guy who was a true believer and presumably attracted other true believers uh, ended up being despised by a chunk of his staff. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, number four. Politico has a piece, and we've gone pretty deep into the podcast before I've mentioned his name, I believe. That would be Donald Trump. But this is not a, a scandal story. This is about his 2024 campaign, and it begins by posing this question. Will it hurt Trump that two of his, what he has touted as, his most important achievements from the White House have become politically complicated or just too hot to touch. And it's actually a thoughtful look because whatever you think of Donald Trump, you know, and you can, what would come to mind, you know, January 6th and um, contesting, you know, continuing to scream election fraud, but also you know, the way he would fire people by tweet before they even knew they were getting fired and all of the different controversies, all the investigations and so forth. But he did have accomplishments if you are a conservative who believed in his philosophy. Three Supreme Court justices on the high court, for example. And that actually fits into the first of the two that political is writing about. That is the reversal of Roe v. Wade. It's turned into, according to this piece, a political Rorschach test for Republicans, with one camp seeing it as a boost at the ballot box and the other fearing it is a hindrance. It's not a word that you usually encounter in uh, everyday conversation. Yeah, I think that would be too much of a hindrance. There are certain words that, just, that only journalists use, and I try not to use them. I mean, it's a perfectly good word. But uh, I'm going to keep track now when I blurt one out. And then I will scold myself. Uh, anyway, um, the other one has to do with vaccines. We'll get to that second. So Trump has praised the anti-abortion movement. He's praised his own role in putting on the high court Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, and Brett Kavanaugh. Um, some of them had said they would respect precedent, but they threw out the precedent, 50-year precedent, returning the question of abortion to the states. But... Trump is savvy enough to know that this was a bit of a time bomb. I mean, he didn't necessarily know that the 6-3 conservative majority would go that far. He said the issue was poorly handled by Republicans. Uh, for instance, those who advocated to no exceptions, whatever, to a ban on abortion. Not incest, not rape, not to save the life of the mother. So... According to Politico, Trump's team believes he can thread the needle between 
touting the work he did and facilitating the end of Roe, but staying on the popular side of public opinion about the restrictions. Uh, Here's his pollster. On the record, John McLaughlin. Especially in a primary, it's a very good talking point for the president. He's got a good record. He's on good ground going into the primary and general election. His position since he ran for office and since he was in office has been consistent. Um, Nikki Haley also didn't mention abortion, by the way, although she is also pro-life and signed an abortion restriction law in South Carolina. Um, But it's going to be, you know, you don't want necessarily to lose all of those. I mean, here's a couple of poll findings. 35% of Republicans disagree with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So that's a minority in the party, and those are the votes you're trying to win now. But among all Americans, 56% do not support the overturning of Roe. That actually seems a little lower um, than when the ruling first came down after it was leaked. And makes me wonder whether or not, now that this is actually playing out on the state level, um, more are accepting the idea of letting local and state officials decide. But a lot of litigation and so forth. Anyway, so abortion will be a wild card. And Donald Trump can honestly tell voters, I'm the one who made this happen. But, as I say, it's a complicated issue. Remember Kansas, pretty conservative state, where something like 60% of people voted to keep abortion legal in that state? So, we'll see. But the other one is even more head-scratching, which is vaccines. Trump is very proud, at least privately, that he mounted Operation Warp Speed. And... It is an amazing accomplishment, and he pushed hard, and he pushed the drug companies hard to come up with this in record time. Nobody thought that could happen, a vaccine for COVID-19. Trump's spokesman said it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime initiative that gave people the option of utilizing therapeutics if they wish to do so. Oh, but he also said that Trump fought against any attempt to federalize the pandemic response by protecting every state's rights to ultimately decide what is best for their people because of the unique challenges Every state has faced. Um, and Trump has, has been sort of swiping at Ron DeSantis on the coronavirus response, uh, coming up with some video clips showing DeSantis is supportive of the COVID vaccine, even as he has become favored by the anti-vaccine right. Now, of course, I do not understand this at all. I understand there's a great debate about vaccines and particularly vaccine mandates. I think that's uh, a much more understandable debate that certain people feel like it should be up to them, they shouldn't face the prospect of losing their jobs, and all of that. But Operation Warp Speed was a miracle, and absolutely, Donald Trump, I mean, the drug companies too, the scientists, but, you know, Donald Trump legitimately gets a lot of the credit. Unfortunately, Vaccines itself, it's become so toxic, um, especially uh, uh, on the right, that that's the point of Politico. is like these things that you would think would be slam dunk achievements to brag about running as a former president, maybe not so much. And number five, this is a follow-up, but it's important. Uh, I told you, I think just yesterday, about this Washington Examiner story about how the State Department was giving money to another group that was funding this 
British outfit called the Disinformation Index. And basically what this index did was to blacklist a whole bunch of conservative media organizations and try to uh, pressure or at least tempt or lure, it's a much better verb, don't you? Uh, Lure advertisers to stay away, this is essentially a boycott, from these dangerous, dangerous groups. And you go through the list and it's just a whole list of conservative media, Washington Examiner, uh, The Federalist, The New York Post, The Blaze, uh, and on and on and on. So now, as a result of that expose, uh, they're backing off. The National Endowment for Democracy, which is this nonprofit group that got the, it was over $300,000. Excuse me, it was over $540,000. Giving this money to the Global Disinformation Index says it's not going to do that anymore. Uh, our mandate is to work around the world and not in the United States. We have strict policies and practices in place, so the work we fund remains internationally focused. Okay, that's just sort of a bureaucratic deflection of, oh, we found this rule, we shouldn't have violated the rule. Um, and by the way, I'm sure it's a coincidence, but the group, the National Endowment, uh, just briefed the House Foreign Affairs Committee, run by Republicans, and another committee to clarify that its grants were not intended for these blacklists. Uh, there'll be no more grants going forward, says a source quoted by the Washington Examiner. But the other side comes back and says, look, you only raise so much money if, you know, you can't say we're not giving money to this if you're also giving money to that. Anyway, when there's a story in the paper or on television that says this is controversial, somebody's giving money to this group and look at what this group has done, and within a day or two, the group caves and says, no, we're not giving any more money. That's a bullseye. That's a direct hit that shows you it was indefensible. They couldn't even make an attempt to defend it. They just said, okay, we'll stop. Um, no mas. <laughs> we're not going to do it. And I don't say this in the spirit of, oh, with somebody on the right scored a victory against somebody on the left. It's more, it was good journalism. And good journalism exposing something that we didn't know and that is an embarrassment. This thing was an absolute partisan garbage embarrassment. So I always like to follow up on those stories. I also always enjoy talking to you about a wide range of stuff. So with that, hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. Apple iTunes is one good place to do it. You don't get any ads. And we shall see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.